Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we're going to try and introduce the complex topic that is sustainable healthcare and explain why it's important for us to be aware of as paediatricians. Two of our Dragon Bites hosts, Dr. Stacey Harris and Dr. Tom Cromarty, are joined by two local trainees with an interest in sustainable healthcare. First, there's Dr. Rosie Spooder, who's one of the paediatric trainees currently in the Seven Deanery. And then there's Dr. Amarantha Fennell-Wells, who's a dental trainee in Wales. Both Amarantha and Rosie are taking time out of training at present in order to undertake different projects in the realms of sustainable healthcare. And they've been kind enough to take some time out of their busy schedules to come have a chat with us about it. This is the first episode in a two-part series. Anyway, let's get started. So welcome everybody. Um, so my name is Dr. Stacey Harris. I'm one of the paediatric registrars and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. Um, and we've also got um, Tom Cromer, who is um, one of the paediatric trainees in Wales and also um, one of the um, presenters in Dragon Bites. Um, and we're delighted to be joined um, by uh, two amazing people who are doing some great work in sustainable healthcare. Um, and so we've got Rosie Spooner and Amarantha Fennell-Wells. Um, I wondered if you'd mind introducing yourself. Rosie, would you like to go first? So thank you so much for asking us to come along to this podcast today. So my name's Rosie Spooner and I'm a peds trainee in the Seven Deanery. Um, I've taken a year out of training to go and work at the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare as a QI Education Fellow, which is a Health Education England funded post. And essentially what my job is is going around explaining about how we can practice more sustainable ethical healthcare using quality improvement as a tool to do so. Amazing, thank you. Amarantha, would you like to go next? Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, my name's Amarantha Fennell-Wells. I'm a dentist by background and I'm in a weird limbo position between core training and registrar training and saw this um, fellowship, which is a Welsh Clinical Leadership Fellowship jointly run by HEIW and Cardiff and Vale Health Board with funding from the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. Uh, I'm spending my time being a new fellow, working out what I need to do because there's so much to be done. And it's been uh, a bit of an endeavour working out where best to place myself strategically and what kind of work I should be doing. So it's been a steep learning curve, but I think I'm finally settled in a couple of projects um, to do. uh, And I've shared a few things with Rosie which has been really nice having that support so yeah thanks for having us <laughs> great oh, thank you very much um so um I thought we'd start off um by just talking about what is sustainable health care it's a re- that's a really good question so I'll, I could give you a small book definition and then <laughs> go, go probably into more about what it means to each of us so the the definition the goal of sustainable healthcare is to meet the needs of patients and populations of the present, the people we're treating and looking after now, but without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So it's about understanding the value of what we're doing now versus not taking away from the people who will follow us. Um, That's kind of the book definition, if you will. 
Yeah, and as paediatricians, that has particular significance because the future generation is, are the people that we're looking after and their kind of their ability to run a national health system in the future will slightly depend on how we as health professionals today act in sort of sustainable ways. So, yeah, I think it has particular significance for those of us who work with children and who have children. And I think that's probably been part of my core uh, desire to get involved was after having had my own kids, I sort of really started hearing much more about sustainability being a really key and important um, public health issue for them and for their future. And I think we can all say that we we understand how important planetary health is, having been sort of exposed to a lot of what Greta Thornburg and Student Strikes has been. And you don't need to watch David Attenborough too much, but you kind of get the message. It's pretty important. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of leads into the whole idea of sustainability as well. Yeah, it's so important. That's what I always think is I think it's like the, the children that I'm looking after and their children and their children. Um, and my great, you know, my great grandchildren, we have to do so. We have to start now, don't we? Great. Thank you both. Um, so, you know, we hear um, um, a lot about the climate crisis. And but, but but why is why is it so important? Why 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 are we why are we um, sort of trying to do something about it? Uh, Rosie? So why, why is the climate crisis so an important thing for us as health professionals? Well, very simply, the climate crisis is the biggest public health threat to, um, to all of us in the 21st century. And the Paris Agreement that has set targets to reduce carbon emissions to, less, to, to sort of net zero um, incrementally over the next 30 years is so important because if we don't, the kind of temperature rises that we're likely to see are sort of almost at the point of non-compatible with life uh, as we know it and that is not meant to be over dramatic but it is really really worrying what we're experiencing um, already and it is affecting people's lives in both this country but particularly in um, some of the poorest countries of the world um, they're really experiencing some of the very detrimental effects of in unstable climate and that's really you know the climate emergency as a health emergency um can't be understated as a, as a really important issue but saying that it sounds very doomist and apocalyptic and all very bad but actually a lot of the solutions um are if you put health at the very center of them they're they're both really positive so you can really kind of make healthier communities that both will have wins on a kind of environmental level but also on a on a healthy healthier lifestyles level so doing those two things together um should be seen as like a really great opportunity so it's the biggest threat but the biggest opportunity yeah that was a really great way to put it Rosie thank you did you have anything to add Amrantha yeah um it, to put it into perspective the things that are happening that ha- yeah, appear in the news forest fires flooding droughts is that in isolation those episodes are awful but we have to recognize as well that those groups of people who are affected are also seeking health care they are seeking um 
addressing of their wounds and they're, they're moving into different population areas that aren't as affected by those issues. So it's not just that those terrible things are happening, it's that we're having to mitigate the care of those people for the things that are happening in due course, putting more pressure on our health systems. And then if you look at the health system and its impact on the climate crisis, it's not without blame. And that's what we're looking to address and investigate is that whole circular nature of the climate crisis, its impact on health and health's impact on the climate crisis. So if all those groups of people individually are looking at what's happening, that's that that cohesive teamwork and collaborative working together is is the idea behind working working towards these net zero goals that we've we've committed ourselves to as as nations as countries um working towards addressing those terrible things that are happening to the poorest populations the ones least responsible for the effects on climate change the ones most vulnerable to its effects yeah it's quite staggering so there's um there's a map that i've um seen where you see uh you know the amount of um uh you know carbon that uh the west is mostly westernized world um produces and then you look at the map where of, of who it affects and it's completely reversed and i think that is absolutely staggering really isn't it you mentioned about um the effects of kind of the healthcare industry can you just go into a bit more details about you know how i suppose the nhs is a big uh, organization and its impact um on on health yeah, so um, as an organisation, you know, we are healthcare providers. We're not health providers. Health is determined by so many wider determinants of health, right? But as a health industry, the whole of the healthcare sector produces about 5% of the UK's carbon emissions, which is approximately the same as the, same, as the number of aeroplanes leaving Heathrow, departing Heathrow annually, like prior to the pandemic. <laughs> which is massively reduced at the current rates. But if the, the healthcare sector was a country globally, so if you put all of the health systems of the world, it would probably be the same as the fifth largest carbon produ- producing country in the world. So just under Japan as a, as a sector. So, you know, there's been a lot of um, focus on the fashion sector. There's been a lot on the kind of aviation industry, but not many people really consider that healthcare is contributing to climate change whilst also going to be experiencing the, the huge effects of climate change. So what can what does that mean in terms of where those carbon emissions are coming from individually? Um, there's the kind of direct effects from um, some of the products that we use, but there's also smaller kind of sections like travel within the NHS, food within the NHS, buildings within the NHS, and all of those have been mapped out. And we're the first health system in the world to do that and set a target of how they're going to be reduced over time. Um, But focusing only on carbon emissions misses the wider kind of environmental issues as well. So the health sector um, was a really a major contribution of mercury in the past when we used to have thermometers and that's been massively phased out in the last 30 years so that shows us that the health system can change and can reduce its environmental impact it was it, i mean in still mercury is used in thermometers in, in a lot of places in in very low resource settings but that mercury ends up leaching into um water systems and mercury poisoning 
poisoning has been affecting um, as a public health issue. So, yeah, the health system has climate effects, but it also has plastic pollution. It also has um, uh, air pollution uh, effects. So we need to kind of think about all of those issues, not just carbon emissions. Right. And I think there's also, there's also some aspects of where where we get our uh, equipment from as well um, and taking some responsibility about you know the the practices where those uh, instruments are made or, or or whatever it is um which sometimes kind of goes un you know not thought about to the people who are using them so much yeah i mean i think it's similar to kind of cheap fashion and you know when you go to a shop and you buy cheap fashion you know there is become an increasing awareness that many of the people that have been involved in the supply chain of that product have been not given the the kind of standards of work practice or or any any practice that you would expect people to be part of um and i think there's been some exposure in the past that some of the instruments that we are using within our health system have been produced by involving child labor for example um and very kind of poor workers' rights in many countries of the world where they're produced. Um, and there's something called the BMA ethical, um, or what's it called, the Amarantha, do you know? I'll, I'll put it at the end of the podcast, but there's a, a great resource and a, a video led by Professor Mahmoud Bhutta who um, explains some of the, the ways that we can help to produce more ethical and sustainable supply chains within the NHS. Amarantha, I was going to ask before, in Wales specifically, um, was there, isn't there a bit of um, legislation or something towards future generations that's quite important? Absolutely. Uh, the Welsh Government has produced this incredible piece of work called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, and it was um, brought into effect about five years ago. And it it talks explicitly about Wales's responsibility to its population but also its global the, the, the global population so it's all about preserving the cultural social economic um situation of wales without sacrificing the the well-being of the rest of the planet um and it's it's really fantastic because it gives us a lot of power it gives a lot of people in wales power to to ask the questions that rosie's bringing up to ask the questions about supply chains and and the clarity of of all of the processes we're we're buying into essentially, um, and I encourage everyone to look it up because it's got very very clear pillars about um, what we should be investigating, and it, the the commissioner uh, of of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, like I said, does have an incredible amount of power to to stop and to question. All, all the things that we're producing at the moment, all the pieces of legislation, all the initiatives, um, and if it doesn't benefit both Wales and doesn't sacrifice the well-being of our fellows out there in the globe, um, it doesn't move forward, and it's incredibly powerful. Great. So it's kind of something we can use to almost hold people account, is it, moving forward? Definitely. Holding to account is the key phrase, um, and holding to account those the three factors we're alluding to but haven't quite put into words in terms of the triple bottom line is that currently our processes are very much based on financial um, financial value but we're arguing that sustainable value and sustainable healthcare needs to equally consider its effects on on the social 
um, issues, our communities, our patients, our staff, our, our global partners, and also the environmental effects. So it's looking at those three pillars in the equation equally. Um, and, and the Wellbeing Future Generations Act does actually reference those things in its legislation. So it, that that's putting it into like finite terms. And we're not saying that we should consider one of those factors above the other. But if you look at if you look at the picture through those three lenses, the kaleidoscope, you actually come up with a better understanding of, of sustainable value of, of a thing or a process. That's awesome. Tom, I've just found it's a fair medical trade um, organisation okay. in the BMA because right. uh, we spend about 40 billion a year on procuring services in the NHS. And mm. so um, that 40 billion shouldn't be used in harmful ways. You know, we need to be making sure that what we're buying and what we're doing is is going to have the best ethical standards to it. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's a great amount of information on there. So, oh, thanks for you have looking that up. And, and um, that was really interesting, Emran, through about the triple bottom line there. Um, is there perhaps an example you can both use of where we can talk about, you know, a specific a specific thing and go in and, and really briefly go into the three aspects and, and how they might rival each other? Do you, do you have any ideas of that? Um, just to bring it kind of an example to, to listeners, um, you know, a, a tangible example. Sure. So um, there's loads of case studies that are available on the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare's website where the triple bottom line has been accounted for or taken into account. But one particular example I can just come to the top of my head was a project that was done by some nursing and um, emergency medical staff down in Devon. And what they did was they looked at um, cannulation in their um, A&E and they found that people were just being cannulated automatically nearly as they were coming through the door. And they did a project where they tried to reduce the number of cannulas that were being put in. And you could just say, OK, from a patient perspective, yeah, there's, you know, there's advantages to be had here by not having a painful procedure that you don't actually need. So if we just went on the purely patient above all perspective, that that's fine. But they actually also measured from a kind of a triple bottom line perspective. So they looked at what was the environmental impact of not putting in cannulas? How much carbon did they save? How many tons of waste were prevented from going to incineration? And that wasn't a particularly difficult calculation for them to do. They also looked at the financial savings. And they also said, from a social aspect, did it improve the kind of flow through the department? But also, was it better for staff members? Did they feel like they had more time to actually speak to a patient rather than you know, have them immediately arrive and cannula, blood, x-ray, okay, through the through the process. And was it was it better from a patient perspective overall? Was there any adverse outcomes that happened? Was anyone kind of not cannulated who needed to be? So they did a whole project just looking at that in a practical, in a in a clinical setting, and that had some really positive outcomes overall. I can think of many, many more if you want more examples. There's lots that lots to be had, but now I'm sure if we've got, we'll put that resource um, in the show notes as well, so that people can access those other examples because I think they're really useful at getting letting people understand it more contextually. Really, yeah. Um, we're going to move on to talking about climate justice and what kind of what that means, um, especially kind of with the topical racial justice and social justice that's going on and where that fits. Um, I don't know if who, who wanted to start with that. Maybe Amarantha. No, Rosie's definitely oh, Rosie. <laughs> a bit more, more than I do on that issue. Hmm. 
Right. Where does climate justice fit with the social and the racial justice movements? Or what is climate justice? Well, we can start with that. So what is climate justice? um, (laughs) That is a big old question. But um, I would say that for me, um, what you were mentioning earlier about having seen the map of the world, whereby where the biggest environmental degradation has occurred and where the impacts of that environmental degradation are being felt um, is a hugely powerful image. So for me, climate justice means taking, trying to take account of most historical and present um, contributions to the crisis that we're in um, and trying to improve, you know, work together both to mitigate and to adapt to the, the situation, the situation we're in. So um, climate justice involves us making changes to our lives now to try to prevent further damage occurring in the future. To me, that's, that's kind of what it means. And how does that fit in with social justice and racial justice? Well, I don't think that we can try and take any of these justice movements in isolation. They're interconnected. And the sort of idea of social justice being able to be um, dealt with in isolation to the climate justice movement seems ridiculous. They both they should work together synergistically to try and improve outcomes overall. So um, a lot of the poorest members of our society will be experiencing air pollution at levels, for example, that, that those who are more wealthy and can live in leafy suburbs will not be experiencing. And so if you're going to design something that's going to try to readdress that, you should also be looking at how to try and readdress some of the inequalities um, overall within the society. So, And in terms of racial justice movement, I think that in this country, we've, we have historically looked at racial justice as more of a social justice movement. And in the USA, they've looked at it more from a racial um, perspective. And I think there's been a really interesting kind of introspection over the last six months to a year on how the the UK is actually really talking about race and you know maybe this recent uh, government paper that's just come out about race and social class has been quite interesting uh, for, for, for the discussion to further itself but um, in the US for example if you're a black person you're 30% less likely to produce Um, air pollution and 40% more likely to live in an area that is experiencing that air pollution and um, David Lammy's got an excellent TED talk talking about the racial and and climate justice movements together and how important they are um, which I would definitely recommend having a a look at. Great thank you. Uh, It's absolutely mind-blowing isn't it I I just find it completely fascinating um, you know hearing about it and understanding it deeper and deeper um i'll um make a note of the david lammy and and put it on the show notes so that people can um access that if they want to um so the other thing that i wanted to talk about um and it's something that um i think often gets forgotten including for me um is um the impact of um the declining biodiversity and i was wondering um 
it's a little bit you know what why is it why is that important but then also what we can do in the nhs to help with that i wondered if you had any ideas with regards so stacy do you think people know what the biodiversity crisis is i don't know do you, what do you understand by it um so what i understand about it um is that um you know there are many species that are becoming extinct um also um you know we are um at the, including like populations of bees which pollinate the food that we eat um and um if that carries on then you know we won't have any animals left we won't have you know the food chain completely um ceases to you know we won't be able to pollinate the food that we eat um that's what i understand by it and that and that um you know we are increasingly um concreting over things um you know uh things are like increasingly unnatural so you know really the world should be forested <laughs> but you know we've got lawns and we've got you know non-native plant species and things like that um and um so so that's what I understand about it and that that to try and um help with that it would be um to kind of uh make make places just more natural and more um wildlife friendly and um not using pesticides and that sort of thing that's that's yeah. what I understand about it but I'm not yeah, sure no, 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 that's a great that's a great kind of um certainly the the kind of headline thing is there which is that that species are becoming extinct at a rate which is like 100 times the background rate that we have experienced before so we know that people that animals have always gone extinct that's evolution you know the dinosaurs went extinct, other animals would have gone extinct, but we are at a mass species extinction. This is the sort of sixth time that the that the um the earth has gone through such a massive extinction rate, and the previous one was um led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. Um so we are um kind of going through this really quite dramatic changes and the causes are multifactorial, but they have one thing in common. And that is human activity. Um, and whatever, there's a whole range of ways in which humans are contributing to the biodiversity crisis. And what can we do to try and address that? Well, green spaces and more wild spaces is one particular way. And the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare has got a forest, which it runs within the National Health Service. So there's actually, we're planting huge numbers of trees in NHS sites. And if you want to learn more about that, look at the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare NHS Forestry um page and learn about what's been going on there there's also uh, a great guide on how you can plant a healthy garden within your health practice so say for example you happen to have um a general practice with a little allotmenty bit to it or some garden to it you could plant um plants in there that help to promote um bee life and pollination um and actually what was one surprising fact to me is that all of the private gardens in the UK um, are far greater than the protected areas of the whole of the United Kingdom. So all of our private owned garden spaces have the potential for making really positive impacts to biodiversity if we all decided to keep these places and and use ways of encouraging them rather than monoculture lawn that can have a really positive impact on um insect and and um, mammalian life so yeah we can make changes that that can help promote that amazing 
And I just wanted to say thank you to both Amarantha and Rosie for taking time out of their busy schedules to come talk to us about this. Join us again next week where we'll have the second half of this episode. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.